You're listening to Blue Yonder with your hosts, Jim Jones, Peter Streets, and introducing Aaron Hubbard. Welcome to episode 70 of Blue Yonder. I'm Jim Jones. And I'm Aaron Hubbard. And we are going to ditch the formalities this week because we have a very special guest with us, uh, Ian Samuel. The long-awaited wow. interview. Very special. Very special, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I feel pretty special. <laughs> you should. You should. You're here on our show. We, we've only done this twice. We did Steve Jackson and now you. Um, oh. But we are going to basically be talking to you all about all sorts of law stuff. Why don't you introduce yourself and... And tell the audience a little bit about you. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I'm a uh, I'm an attorney. I live in uh, Washington D.C., uh, where I have lived for about two years. Uh, I have known your co-host since I was uh, just a kid, basically, a uh, long time. At least we, I don't we're, know, we're all fifteen years then. or something. Long yeah. time. Uh, and uh, in addition to being all of that stuff, I'm also the world's uh, biggest nerd. So uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's basically the deal. Great. Now I hear you have a disclaimer that you want to uh, drop on us up front. Uh, yeah, well, I guess. I mean, uh, I don't know why people uh, even have to say this anymore, but uh, like every person with a job uh, is aware, uh, you know, I'm an attorney for the government. I work for the Justice Department, uh, but uh, no one at the Justice Department even has any opinions on any of uh, the stuff that I'm about to uh, espouse. Uh, and if they did, I certainly wouldn't uh, be expressing them. So the point is, uh, I'm, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I have to say that I think everything I'm going to say is so persuasive and cor- and obviously correct <laughs> that it should be the position of the government. Of course, I would yeah. expect nothing less. So, yeah. So the the point is, uh, you know, if, if they haven't if they haven't said it yet, just keep waiting. It'll be their official position soon. Gotcha. So you are yeah. in fact a lawyer, but this is not legal legal advice. Right. It's not you're... legal. There's no uh, listening to this show does not create an attorney-client relationship. You have to give me money for that. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Uh, so with that out of the way, we've got a couple of things like on the personal, and then we're going to uh, head on to the professional. But uh, one thing I've always been struck by you, you say that you're the world's largest nerd, biggest nerd. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of agree. I mean, you've got uh, a lot of nerd credentials there. But I would say that you're also uh, pretty high amongst the functional geeks. That I know. In fact, if I took two axes, you know, one functional and one geek, I say you're probably the single person I know with the combined highest ratings on both said axes. Well, thank you. I mean, you're confident, successful. I've seen you be good with the ladies. I've heard you talk about it for many years, but you know, <laughs> in, in in the last couple of years when we've been traveling together, I've I've seen this with my own two eyes. And again, your nerd credentials. We we met on a internet use group. Uh, mm-hmm. Arguing Star Trek versus Star Wars, which is better? That's pretty nerdy. Yeah. What's still kind Not of which is better? You're making it sound better <laughs> than it is. Which would be militarily superior in a hypothetical 
all federation versus all empire conflict. Uh, better would be like a, a, a sort of interesting aesthetic debate, but this was more, you know, uh, let's uh, let's measure the lengths of the beams on the screen and get, you know, uh, turbo laser wattage ratings, that kind of thing. Yeah, and and when I say we were like this was a hobby, I mean this wasn't something like we got to digest once a month. We were in the no, trenches no, no. fighting every fucking day. Every day. You know, I went back and checked uh, a while ago to, to measure the number of posts I had on that uh, news group, and it was uh-huh. around 10,000. 10, oh, yeah. posts. Wow. A lot of them were long, too. I mean, this was a, a huge, huge investment of my uh, you know, early teenage years. And I have to say, I regret nothing. I regret nothing. I learned a lot. I, learned, I, I genuinely learned a great deal about uh, the scientific mode of inquiry uh, from, from, from that stuff. So it was great. So That's what true. is the wattage of a turbo laser? <laughs> I used to know well, this. It's high. It's really high. Uh, apparently, these things. Uh, when it, you know, watt, it's wouldn't be watts. It would be joules, I guess. But uh, you know, apparently, these things. Yeah, you know, they can vaporize an asteroid. I don't know if you've ever seen The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, you know, I haven't. That's the one movie that I've been <laughs> really wanting to get to, but I just it's, haven't it's had time. It's in your Netflix queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, you're going to really enjoy it. Don't let anyone spoil the ending. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, so anyway, what do you owe this di- dichotomy to? Because that you, they don't roll many of yourself off the assembly line. That's like not you know they're not pumping them out day after day in, in Chrysler in Japan. Good rolls on his character stats. That's my guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I think mainly uh, it's, it's that I roll twenties. Uh, I mean, what can I say? Um, but it, you know, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I have to say. I don't feel especially uh, functional a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, if I am, I guess I just sort of uh, – it's partly that, you know, a lot of geeks are younger guys uh, who haven't really grown into themselves yet and haven't found uh, the sort of confidence that can come from, like, understanding that all the stuff that makes you uh, different and strange is also going to be a source of being really great at stuff. Uh, and once you get into your life a little more, I mean, as I see, you know, guys and, and, and girls sort of grow up and grow into themselves, uh, they all end up, I think, being pretty highly functional. I mean, we can all think of the sort of counterexamples of the guy who's 35 and still lives with his mom. But I think, you know, 99 percent of cases, pretty much, uh, you know, geeks end up running the world. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, richest guys in the world are, are huge nerds. Uh, and they seem pretty highly functional. So I think it's just a thing that, you know, you got to get through, you know, when you're 13 or 14 and it sort of sucks for a while. Uh, but then you realize that, you know, you're actually destined for, uh, for greatness. Cool. Um, speaking of being functional and like, you know, multidisciplinary and multi-interest, uh, you talk about, uh, you talk more than most geeks anyway, about sports related topics. Um, yeah. like, you know, if the Broncos are doing well, cause you're a Colorado native, uh, you're all talking shit on Twitter and sending people emails mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. when the, uh, uh, baseball teams, the Colorado Rockies had that uh, playoff run, you were all about that. Um, uh, but I also noticed you're, you're a little bit, maybe, um, a front runner, hometown front runner. Like when you're mm-hmm. in New York, you're all about the, you know, New York giants and you're always kind of follow the. Colorado sports teams, but you know, I don't know if you're into the Washington Wizards now or the. Well, uh, no, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like to pay attention to the, the people locally. You know, they care about the local team, so it's you know, it's nice to care. Right, uh, you have something to talk about. Do you actually are you actually diehard for lots of sports, or do you just kind of follow when the home teams are doing well, or is it like a political career ploy, or what? 
Well, you know, uh, I think it's – I guess I do uh, – I guess I – I mean I classified fairly as a pretty big sports fan and I sort of enjoy uh, the, the nerd aspects of it. It's why I've come to appreciate baseball a lot because it has the best uh. statistics uh, and, you know, it's a lot of fun. I mean essentially it's uh, – uh, it's not all that different from uh, you know there was an XKCD comic uh, I don't know about two weeks ago that said uh, it was like two guys talking uh, and uh, one of them said to the other uh, hey so uh, uh, weighted ram- random number generator just produced a uh, new set of outputs let's yeah. put narratives from them right uh, and the bottom was captioned all sports commentary yeah uh, and that's basically right but then the whole text of the comic was you know and for that matter uh, Dungeons and Dragons which is also true yeah. uh, and so you know I think I think of this as a very you know as you get as you get into it uh you know, sports fandom becomes very, very nerdy, uh, and that's what I like about it. I really like, I, I really enjoy, you know, fantasy baseball and the sort of uh, uh, that side of it. So I, I'm a, I'm a big fan. See, I'm actually afraid of fantasy baseball because you're right. Like, the, I think baseball is the only game where if you look at the stat box, you basically can visualize exactly how the game went down. I mean, yeah. every play, you know every that. interaction. It's not like football where there's so many things going on in the field that if you just look at the score box and, you know, the the, the, the running play commentary or whatever, you don't know everything that's going on. But baseball is pure math. It could be yeah. represented as just a set of numbers. And, yeah. you know, I'm big time into fantasy football, fantasy baseball, since it lasts, like, basically, I think a season's three and a half years long. And it has like seven thousand yeah, games. It's a standard three three point fiver is what is what we call it. Uh, three fiver. Yeah, and, and uh, there's there's a the standard three and a half year season. There's at least five games every day of the week. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I, that uh, would like lose job and family for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it's one of these things where you can go as deep as you want to go. Uh, you can really, really get into this stuff at a level lo- because there's also so much happening. I mean, you know, there's a lot of baseball players in the world, and they're constantly doing things or being picked up out of the minor leagues. And oh, I mean, you know, I know people who have you know National League only Triple A fantasy leagues, right? And, you know, they love it. Yeah, uh, I know that too. But you, you, wow. The rabbit hole is deep, very deep. <laughs> Uh, moving back to the nerd side of the spectrum. Speaking of a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> we talked about mm-hmm. in, in the intro about Star Wars versus Star Trek as a hobby, and I've thought about this a lot um, because did that in some way, because you were very much into debate throughout high school and college. Um, mm-hmm. I think you won some some uh, championships, if I recall correctly. I was. I was a national debate champion. Now, that is nerdy. That is ne- that is white and nerdy. Um, do you think that getting into that, you know, argumentative and, you know, very cutthroat and, you know, adversarial environment, Star Wars versus Star Trek, did that inspire you to debate and a legal career or was it the other way around? Because I think that, too. Did I Was I attracted to that because, you know, Star Wars versus Star Trek? Um, and then I became a cross-grained asshole that argues all the time and wants to be right because of that participation? Or was I a cross-grained asshole that wanted to be right all the time and I was attracted to the Star Wars for Star Trek debate? Where do you yeah. think you lie on that? I think, uh, you know, to some extent, it's sort of mutually reinforcing, right? Mm. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten into that stuff if I didn't sort of enjoy arguing about, I mean... You know, the idea of arguing about, you know, the military capabilities of two entirely fictional uh, armies is uh, you have to enjoy arguing a little bit to start right. with and have the right kind of personality. Right. Uh, but it definitely did. I mean, you know, it was a lot of fun. And it was the first time I'd ever had sort of reasonably structured – because the thing about a news group post is, you know, you can uh, – you can 
be as precise and as structured as you want uh, in your replies to people. So unlike a, an argument in person where it's just sort of this constant back and forth flow and you, know, you don't really get to get all your points out before the other person uh, wants to talk and things can go off in other directions, uh, you know, in a written argument uh, – and this was the first time I'd ever really had a written argument uh, – you can really you – know, you have some kind of structured disagreement and really get into that. And that actually ends up being pretty important both in the world of debate and then in the world of law because uh, you know, debate isn't written but it is highly structured and arguments in you know, legal briefing are obviously both written and structured. So uh, yeah, I think it's mutually reinforcing. I'm, I'm, I am kind of a pisser. Uh, there's no doubt about that and I do enjoy uh, – you know, I was giving my mom hell about you know, all sorts of stuff my entire life. But um, I think it definitely you – know, it, it did play a role for sure and uh, uh, for that I will always be very glad. We played that like an MMO. I mean, we and I would say that our generation destroyed the group because oh, I think I think that's right. We took that over and mind fucked the group. I mean, we established like uh, parliamentary law and Robert's rules yeah. of orders. Wait, and, what? Oh, uh, explain this to me. Parliamentary <laughs> law. There was a there, there was a government. There was a government of the news. <laughs> Wait, um, and there. There were elections. Uh, there were written, like <laughs> extensive written rules, which were actually, uh, you know, they were. I mean, you might ask how those got enforced, but it's just everyone sort of. I mean, it was consent of the governed, basically. Everyone just believed in them. Yeah. Uh, and when you didn't, you know, you sort of had to, you know, you had to overcome the weight of of opinion to the contrary. Um, we we are still yeah. here talking about Star Wars versus Star Trek, right? Yeah. This went. Yeah. I'm this, this blows went my deep. mind. This went deep. And we it we. Was very- we basically hung the Trek fans with the rope they gave us. Like, at, at the whole time, they they went along with all these things we were putting in place that was designed <laughs> yeah. to destroy, uh, invalidate, and negate every possible avenue of argument they could make. Right. I mean, it, it, what, what happened was, I mean... As, the, as it became more serious and more structured, and atta- I mean, this debate has been going on forever, but for whatever reason, it started to attract the attention of uh, two kinds of people. One, people who were actually like engineers and scientists, and so could bring to bear sort of actual technical expertise on how you, you know, for example, uh, how much energy would it take to blow up a planet? Well, that's a question that sounds in science, and there's an answer to that, right? And you can figure out what it is uh, to a, you know, reasonably good degree of precision and infer other stuff. And then we had a group of people who, you know, were like, you know, like me, who didn't have, you know, sort of any particular knowledge, but had a lot of free time and a lot of enthusiasm for the argument. Uh, and then over time, as it turns out, you know, this sort of worked itself out such that the the debate basically ended. Um, to the to, <laughs> like, I, I just don't think that there's any sort of like on a sort of the playing field that was established uh, with the sort of assumptions about you know you can't say things like the good guys always win and things like that. Uh, on the playing field that was established, it just became clear after long enough that there was like an answer to this question, and there was no point debating it anymore. Well, I think we've opened the topic back up here on Blue Yonder because uh, Aaron and I have a segment uh, where I try to disprove Star Wars' uh, superiority. Hasn't oh, gone really? well what for you, me What yet. do you got? Well, I, I, went, <laughs> I went with time travel, first of all. I, I decided that, well, okay, Star Wars, they can pick – the Empire can pick the place that it's fought because they have speed um, on their side. But Star Trek has more canonical examples of time travel. So I think Star or Star Trek should be able to pick the time that they fight in. That'd be fine, except there are no examples of the Federation using time travel to win a military conflict. I mean, this, why don't they just do that to the Borg anyway? Isn't that like exactly what I said? That's basically well, you didn't add the military. You said they didn't use it to change 
I guess, the the future or the past. Right. Success, but then they brought yeah. the whale back, and we were like, oh, well, where does that stand? You know? Yeah. They have changed. But the other thing is Although they... Although, uh, in Enterprise, I would argue, which is, however bad, canonical, um, they do use time travel to alter the future militarily. The other thing that I would say is that they can displace, um, you know, time, but they can't really do that to space. Because you never see them go back in time and also travel to another galaxy. Whereas, so, so are you saying that they could not go back in time far enough to then travel to where they needed to be? To well, kill? not unless they had like a generation ship. I mean, you saw how long sure, it took sure, Voyager sure. to get from the freaking. Well, isn't the Enterprise essentially a generation ship <laughs> with Wesley Crusher? With uh, I think you could pull off generations on that ship. I don't know. By the time they got to the Star Wars galaxy, they might all be insane or want to just join up. Are we really doing this? Are we, are we debating <laughs> okay, this on the yeah, show? Yeah, let's not debate it here. Um, I did want to say that the other thing I was awful proud of is that, because, um, you know, we had troll groups and whatnot back in the day, and they mm-hmm. prided themselves on destroying these groups. Like, they would <laughs> alter the signal-to-noise ratio so high that the group would, everyone would leave, and for, you know, a couple weeks, if you could disrupt traffic for a couple weeks, a lot of times the groups are fragile enough that they'd never reform. One of the things I was always proud of of the group is that we usually de- we defeated these trolls and we actually co-opted them several times. Like you know, yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, there was one group called the Adjective Army, and there was another one that did the meow meow stuff, and they were like <laughs> yeah. kind of like feared opponents of the internet. And we just like, okay, this is as fun as what we were doing last week. So come on, bring it. <laughs> right. um, yeah, in many ways, I mean. The- it's like you, you can't get more annoying than a bunch of people who want to argue the technical <laughs> details about a military conflict between Star Trek and Star Wars. Like, right. It's like just by showing up, we're sort of trolling you. I mean, right. you know, what you, it's like, you know, you, you think you think the meow meow stuff's annoying? Like, well, you know, we're doing something by choice that's even uh, probably a lot more tedious and worse. That's so. like showing up at Rick Astley's house and expecting to troll him. Yeah, right. You know? We're going to rickroll yeah. you, dude. <laughs> exactly. Wrong. Sorry, this is how I live. Yeah. Um, so I actually met you for the first time at PAX in 2010. PAX East, rather. Um, mm-hmm. Where this was your first PAX, correct? It was my first PAX, and it was the first PAX East. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and believe it or not, I don't know what the odds are against this. You could probably figure them out with your, your math expertise. But uh, you were selected to be an Omega Knot on your first try. Yes, I was. And the weird thing is I, I kind of had a feeling that I was going to be. I mean, I can't prove this, <laughs> uh, obviously, in hindsight bias and whatever. But I'm, I'm telling you, when I was sitting there in the crowd and they're about to make an announcement, I, I had like a feeling it was going to be me. Well, it definitely was, regardless. They picked you. Um, I was just wondering, could you explain to the audience a little bit what life is like as an Omega Knot? Um, and having been both, now that you've been to PAX East 2011, would you rather attend your next PAX as an Omega Knot or as just a normal civilian? Well, I, I think when I explain what goes into being an Omega Knot, the answer to that question will become pretty obvious. So <laughs> yeah. the, the deal is the Omegathon is is what you're actually there to do as an Omega Knot, which is a, a competition involving you – know, I think it's usually four rounds. Uh, in my year, and I think in the, in the most recent year as well, it was done in pairs. So you had teams of two, and you were just randomly paired up. Uh, and it's single elimination. So you know, in the first round, for example, it was Mario Kart Double Dash, and uh, you know – 
team against team, uh, two on two, and if you're eliminated, you're out. And it takes place over the course of the weekend. So every day there's you know one or two of the rounds, and and, and that's that's it. And so you say it like that, and then if you win, you get to go on a big trip uh, to you know like Europe, or to go to a video game convention or there or something. And it's really cool. Uh, so it's cool to win. But what's the the best part about it actually has nothing to do with that. Although you know I do enjoy you know people came and they you know they watch your events and it's cool to play games in front of people and, and that's that's awesome. Uh, but the best part is. You have uh, this special badge as an Omega Knot, which allows you to skip any of the lines for anything. Uh, so you never have to line up. You don't have to line up for anything. And I, I've tested this principle, I believe, as far as it will reasonably go. <laughs> I, any kind of line that I could think of to skip, uh, I tried to skip. And I was never rebuffed. Never. I mean, the enforcers always were like, yep, right, you know, right to the front of the line. So, I mean, like, obviously the panel stuff. You know, skip to the front of the line on that. Uh, the concerts, no waiting around. Uh, even at the on the, the the show floor, when there would be lines to get into the most popular booths. So I think that Red Dead Redemption, for example, was uh, was at PAX, was at that PAX season. It was a huge line. You had to wait, you know, two hours or something to get in there. Right to the front of the line. You just you just skip. You go right in and you do anything. It's like it's it's like there's no way to describe. How much this changes the experience? Um, I actually saw you I, cut in front of the concession stand in front of me. I yeah, watched you roll yeah, right up, grab a hot dog. Yeah, yeah. The concession stand. The line <laughs> get uh, the line to get stuff autographed by Gabe and Tycho. Skip to the front of that line. Uh, just no any, shit. I mean, the really? only one I didn't try was to skip to the front of the bathroom line. Right, and uh, I yeah. probably would have been bridged too far. Well, I'm actually impressed that um, you actually use those powers to skip through the autograph lines. That's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah, no, I, I was not exp- that one. I was a little skeptical about that it was going to work, but now the enforcers were like, "Go, go right to the front." It was huh. crazy. Wow, uh, and it was great. And uh, people uh, were actually pretty, uh, on the whole, cool about it. I mean, the people I was get, like cutting in front of uh, basically accepted my representations that this was the way it worked. Um, so, I mean, saying all that, obviously, it's better to go as an Omega. I think that certain other badges, like the VIP badges, uh, I think will do this, and maybe the band badges, maybe. Uh, and obviously, like you know, Gabe and Tycho have their you know special whatever they could do anything. But um, as a, as a practical matter, as a, as a regular person, this is as good as it's ever going to get uh, to go to PAX because it's just incredible. Now you lose a little something. You lose a little something because it's not like this time you spend in lines is is totally wasted so you know you, you can meet people and make friends and chat people up and, and whatever and that's fun uh but the thing is like you know it's like five percent fun and like 95 percent you know not that fun because you're waiting around yeah uh, um, so the so- consequence is that at least what i did you know this most recent year is i just didn't do a lot of stuff that required a lot of waiting in line so i spent much more time you know in the tabletop room uh where uh-huh. of course you know you really don't have to wait for anything or i spent right. time you know going to uh you know panels that weren't you know, going to be so full that you had to line up hours in advance and things like that. And so, uh, you know, it sort of changed the parts of the convention I experienced. And, you know, not necessarily for the worse, uh, but it's definitely different. Um, so you mentioned the Omegathon, um, and I know a lot of your PAX East 2010 was spent preparing for that. Now that – do you consider that a drawback? Do you consider that an advantage to be able to play in the Omegathon? Uh, what was your, your take on that? Well, the thing, yeah. So I did spend time. There was this one game, uh, and I had it was Geometry Wars, and I'd never played it uh, ever. I just, I just sort of had missed it, and uh, I knew it was going to be the next round. It was going to be the next day, and I wanted, you know, I just, I'm very competitive. I like to win at stuff, and so I wanted to get ready, and I wanted to play this thing. Uh, so I spent a bunch of the, I think it was the the first evening, uh, getting ready for this and sort of practicing up and, you know, and practicing and practicing, and then, you know, it didn't end up being enough, and that was the round I was eliminated. Um, 
but I don't really see that as a drawback because you know you you don't have to do that. I mean, people I was you know other Omega knots did not take it nearly as seriously. They just sort of had a good time, um, you know, did what they could, and uh, you know showed up at the appointed times to try to compete. Um, and they you know they they had a great time. And uh, so it's it's not like you have to do that. I mean, the the actual time commitment is something in the order of probably you know a couple of hours, uh, and sure. it's a fun couple of hours. You're playing games and people are watching, and it's cool. So sure. uh, there's really there are essentially no drawbacks. I don't understand why people don't enter because there are no downsides right. at all really yeah. that are significant. If you don't enter, shame on you. you Stage fright. Try to be making on. Stage fright. And, and, and also, it seems like that the round two is by far the most competitive round. Because round one is like a cattle call. It's like, you're an Omega Knot, and here's where you go, and it's some game that everyone's probably played at least once, and you haven't practiced in a million years because it's, you know, Super Mario Kart on a 64, and it's on a big screen, go. Then round two is the next day. You actually have time to think about it. You can prep for it. Round Mm -hmm. three is usually something on stage before a concert night, so it's like some kind of rock band type thing. And stage four Mm -hmm. is a mystery. So, like, really, stage two is the only one that would require boning up on probably right exactly i mean with like with like rock band i think they play on medium i think you mm-hmm. have to right uh, and so you know this the skill sort of threshold is already you know you, you can't get that good at playing rock band on medium right. but i totally agree with that i think i think round two is the tough round it's the key round key round so um the other thing is man i feel like every single one of my packs has been better than the year before mm-hmm. but your first packs you were an omega knot you got <laughs> on stage with the fucking proto men you hit on one of the proto girls and went out on a date with her out in the convention. I was like, you're never going to top that PAX experience, right? Unless, I, like, I, Gabe adopts you as his son. I would top it. Right? <laughs> so, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's, it's sort of weird that I sort of, uh, you know, when I was going to, to 2011, I thought, you know, I'm going to have a good time. It's going to be great. Uh, but it's going to be hard to top that. Because in addition to that, it was also, like, my first packs right which right. is always going to be sort of special and sure. fun um so but, you know i feel good about it i mean i really i had a good time in 2011 uh, and I'm, I'm sure i'm going to keep enjoying it and uh you know it, it is weird though to sort of know that you've probably i've probably been to the best packs i'll ever go to but maybe not maybe i'll be wrong and if i'm wrong you know whatever i go to is gonna be it's gonna have to be fucking great so that's gonna be good well when you get your vip badge for being the crack legal correspondent for blue yonder i mean that's <laughs> yeah, just gonna be all that'd access be that'd so. be good that'd be good i do i do uh i do think they should uh they should recognize my specialness with some kind of badge <laughs> um speaking of specialness um i've always thought because you've got many talents and i thought for sure when i first met you online that you would eventually become a software developer or some kind of it career you eventually went into the legal profession and we'll talk about that later but you also i thought were a talented writer um because we'd have like kind of freeform writing stuff in the different groups that we'd be in and you always wrote these like really kind of you know, Terry Pratchett, uh, Douglas Adams style, absurdist satire pieces that were funny as hell. Um, oh, thank you. I know you have like, you know, family in the biz. Your mom is actually a published author. Um, have yeah. you ever thought about, I mean, do you have that itch that, that, that or, do you, or do you scratch it exclusively with Twitter and blogging and all that kind of stuff? Or do you think that you've got something more of that in, in you? Well, I I do. Well, first of all, thank you. That's very nice to say, and I'm glad you uh, glad you appreciated it. But uh, I do enjoy. I do really like writing, um, and one of the reasons I like being a lawyer is because law is is actually a lot more writing than most people think, um, and I enjoy that part of it the most. Um, 
whether I've, I mean, I have definitely given serious consideration to trying to like publish fiction. Um, and the main thing is, is that, you know, right now I don't want to do that enough to give it the kind of care and attention uh. that I know it takes. I mean, you, you meet people all the time who are like, oh, I want to write a book one day. And like, right. you know, the, the the truth is, is like writing a novel is an extremely difficult undertaking, and, I, and I've, I've seen this my whole life growing up. How much energy it takes, how much discipline and like focus, and like just time, and like it, you know, it takes a part of you, and you know, you should never get that part back uh, if you're going to do it right. So, uh, I don't want to do it enough yet to go through what I know it takes. Uh, whether I ever will, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I do have, like you say, sort of other ways of scratching the edge. You know, I really like, you know, I I, I enjoy the tweeting. I enjoyed the tweeting. I don't blog really anymore, but I enjoyed that uh, when I did it. Um, but you know, it's it's possible. I think my mo- I think my mother, uh, who who is a professional novelist, uh, I think she thinks I will. Uh, but I don't know if she's right about that. Do you get to do? Because every once in a while, you'll see a legal decision like handed down from a judge that's like passed around on Slashdot or Hacker News, where he just like eviscerates a defense or a um, what do you call the the. Ruling. The prosecutor. Yeah. He's either defense or prosecutor for being stupid, and it's funny and snarky. Do you get to do a lot of like clever writing in legal papers? Is it because because the way you talked about it, it's almost like I guess yes. I know there's a lot of writing in legal ter- uh, uh, profession, but it seems like there'd be a lot of boilerplate, and not much chance to be kind of snarky and creative and clever and 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 funny. Well, I, I think the chances to write well are there if you want to take them. And the the, the reason most legal writing isn't very good is because uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be good. I mean uh. a boring brief uh, that isn't particularly well written uh, can and often does still win, right? Because this isn't – you know it's not a writing contest. It sort of is supposed to be about uh, figuring out what the law is. But uh, if you want to take those opportunities, I mean there's – of course, there's boilerplate in the law and plenty of it, and there are parts that are just sort of, you know, routine, sort of rote recitation of, you know, legal standards or whatever. But in every in everything that a lawyer writes, whether it's a brief or, or a, a judicial opinion or whatever, uh, there's some meat. There's some argument in there where, you know, the, the, the sort of boilerplate is, is put to the side and you actually try to explain uh, what your argument is and, and why you're right. And in the process of doing that, you can write as well as you want to write. Um, you can write some really good stuff. And there are a lot of gifted, uh, especially judges. I mean there are judges uh, who are just known to be very gifted writers and whose stuff can be read uh, by a regular person with a – you know, potentially anybody with a uh, high school education uh, and uh, you know, pretty good uh, knowledge of English uh, can read this stuff and you – know, I don't – I'm not going to say it's going to be, you know, uh, better than the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but it's it's good. You know, it's it's enjoyable, and you and you so you can write that well if you want to. Uh, and I think most you know most of the time people just choose to do otherwise, and uh, I think that's why. I, I hear that actually uh, Stephen King is considering a legal career, so that might just change the whole face of that game. <laughs> that's perfect. It's perfect. That guy's going to be good. Uh, this is probably a good time to transition into the next section of our show. Um, now that we know everything about your personal life, we know all the intimate details about you. I don't know all the intimate no, details. No, no. I know them all. <laughs> um, I, let's move into your, your profession, into the legal aspects. Um, why would you suggest that anyone go into a legal career? Or why, why did you personally? Or why did you personally, yeah. Well, I did because what happened was I, I mean, the sort of biographical sort of story behind it is I was a, I was a college debater. I was getting my degree in computer science. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was a, like a junior or something, maybe a sophomore. Um, 
and I had just finished a summer working uh, in the, a very large IT department uh, for you know a gigantic insurance company, and uh, I did not enjoy it. Uh, it was not I was not doing the kind of stuff that had made me like computer science as a discipline, and I started to realize that the only thing that I could do in computer science as a, that would sort of be the things that I liked about it would essentially be an academic career uh, as a sort of you know graduate student and, and eventually maybe professor of computer science, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's where the really interesting sort of theoretical stuff happens, and you know in, in production and in sort of day to day life uh, of you know of writing code and uh, or doing whatever um, that wasn't the stuff that moved me. Not to say it, a lot of people don't enjoy it because a lot of people do enjoy it, but I wasn't moved by that. Um, and I didn't really want to be an academic. So I was sort of casting around for other things. And my debate partner at the time said, you know, I don't know why you've never considered uh, going to law school because you seem like you probably enjoy it. Uh, we have a lot of friends who've gone into it who could tell you about it. Uh, it seems like, you know, maybe law, maybe you, could, maybe you would really like it. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking, and then I eventually sort of decided to do it. Um, now, the only reason anyone should go to law school is if they want to be a lawyer, um, which seems like – Duh, right? But all the time, people go to law school for all sorts of other reasons. Like primarily, uh, they say that you know you can do a lot with a legal degree. Yeah, it's true. Um, I guess you can, but that's a you know that's a very expensive uh, credential to not use for the main thing that it's for. And uh, you know those people inevitably end up unhappy in law school. Uh, they don't like it very much because it is really about being a lawyer. Um, so you know why do it? I mean, I, you should do it if you think that the actual work of lawyers, which you should try to find out about. Uh, before you go sounds like something you'd be happy doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And, you know, for a lot of people, the answer to that when they sort of figure out what it is lawyers do uh, is no, uh, that doesn't sound very fun, in which case you Uh should probably definitely save yourself the, you know, $100,000 or whatever you'd spend going through law school uh, and uh, do something else. But, you know, I love it. So I'm very happy I went. So you're a lawyer. Um, You said you work for the Justice Department. Now, within the uh, Department of Justice, is it all just kind of like one homogenous department? Do you have different divisions? Um, and if so, tell us a little bit specifically what you do and what you how you fit in there. Sure. Uh, so the Justice Department is re- is very big. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of people who work for the Justice Department and a lot of attorneys. Um, and so there are definitely different divisions. And the specific section I work in is the civil division. Um, so the division that is not concerned with uh, criminal sort of prosecutions at all or anything like that. And specifically, uh, I work on the appellate staff. So I practice uh, exclusively in the courts of appeals uh, of the United States. So the, you know, if you've, people have heard of the Ninth Circuit, for example, that's a federal mm-hmm. court of appeal uh, that, I, that I practice in. Um, and uh, what we do, the sort of stuff that comes our way is sort of any matter uh, that's not, you know, a criminal case. So, for example, if people have, have read about, uh, you know, the uh, challenges to the, uh, the health care law, uh, we, we are handling the defense of the health care law. If people have read about, you know, essentially the government participating in any high-profile case that isn't a criminal case, uh, that's us. That's what we do. Um, and it's, it's very fun. It's very satisfying. It's very enjoyable. I've, I've been able to have you – know, the nice thing about being a government lawyer is you get a lot of responsibility early, which makes up for the fact that, you know, you don't make as much money. Uh, but, you know, I've had, uh, I've had two arguments so far uh, in the sort of year I've been in this, uh, this section, and it's been, it's been really good. Excellent. Um, so when I, when I picture this, I'm picturing like basically a scene from A Few Good Men. Um, I, I know you're not, you're not arguing criminal cases, so it's probably not usually the case. Um, but what is it like to 
to argue in front of such a high level court and and how does it compare to what we might see in the movies well, the deal is – so the main thing that's different, I think, is that uh, in the courts of appeals and in the Supreme Court, you know, there's no jury. Uh, so it's just judges. It's a panel of judges. It's usually three judges on the courts of appeal, and of course it's the nine justices in the Supreme Court. And the way the argument works is you, know, you have a set amount of time, maybe half an hour per side. Uh, you go up there and you sort of start presenting your argument, and you are immediately interrupted uh, with questions from the panel. Uh, and you answer their question, and you're probably – your answer will, will be – likely be interrupted as well. Um, and it's a back and forth uh, much more than a sort of uh, like monologue presentation. Um, and this is, this, is more, this is more true the more the important the case is and the sort of higher you go. So a Supreme Court oral advocate, uh, you know, the first thing that they're told is, you know, you, you're probably not going to get a second sentence out at the beginning. So you better make sure your first one uh, is pretty good because after that, you know, it's fair game and you're going to get interrupted with what the judges want to talk about. Um, so, you know, most of the t- so that that I, I mean, it's very interesting. It's you know, it's it's really like adrenaline filled, and you're sort of like up there, like actually in a back and forth for you know however much time you're up there. I mean, there's nothing uh, there's nothing really quite like it that I've done. Um, but you know, it's also about you know dry points of law uh, because you know these are courts of law, and so they're not really interested in sort of like figuring out you know what really happened in a certain set of facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, movies thus tend to focus a little more on like you know, and, and you know, for example, there are also no witnesses. Uh, it's just you and the judges, so you're not cross-examining anybody, uh, things like that. So you know, whether or not uh, that would make for good TV, I don't know. I would watch it, but uh, I think it's pretty different from what we see most of the time. Now, how because that blows my mind. How does that actually work? How is it that you get one sentence into your argument and you're immediately cut off with, uh, yeah, whatever. This is what I want to know about. <laughs> like this. So I'm, I'm assuming that the justices all have both sides of your argument basically, and they've read it in advance, and they kind of know what parts right. they agree with, what parts they don't agree with, and what parts, and they're just trying to use you to drill through to the information they want. Exactly right. Uh, so they, before you get to the argument, you will, you will have filed briefs that set forth, you know, in detail your legal arguments, uh, and they've they've read those and they're familiar with them. And so there's really the, the argument is really not to sort of get out that those sort of basic outline main arguments. They want to probe the difficulties with your position. Uh, they want to sort of get into you know the sort of the way these things interact, and you know, sometimes they want to convince one another. I mean, sometimes uh, you know, a question for you is really sort of directed at one of their colleagues who they know is sort of listening, and they're trying to persuade this person sort of, but through asking you a question. Um, and it's you know, it's it's live fire. I mean, it's a lot of fun, but it is uh, it can be very uh, you know, it's very uh, very intense. So, have have anyone ever like actually screamed objection in the court? That's what I want to know. Like Phoenix uh, well, Wright I like style. I like to do that. I, I like to do it a little bit before everybody gets there. <laughs> okay, um, okay. <laughs> Probably the best idea. Um, are there any yeah. outrageous things you could tell us that have happened uh, while you've been in court um, that you could maybe talk about? Outrageous things. Outrageous things. Yeah. Here, here is a – I don't know if this is outrageous, but it certainly was – it was surprising. So my, my first argument, I was uh, – it was in New York City in the Second Circuit. I was very excited. Uh, it was the first one I'd ever done. I'm up there and I'm, I'm so excited. And I, and I was scheduled last uh, on the docket for the, uh, for the day. There were three or four cases being argued before me. Uh, and one of them was uh, – it was an immigration case uh, where the sort of question was whether the 
immigration authorities had rightly ordered a certain person removed from the United States. Like, okay, so far it seems pretty routine. Uh, there are lots of those cases. Uh, but when the, the – who I thought was going to be the lawyer for the uh, immigrant herself uh, stood up, I realized it was actually uh, the, the immigrant who had been ordered removed. Uh, which is unusual because usually, you know, usually, I mean, sometimes people appear, it's called appearing pro se, like for yourself. Uh-huh. And you sometimes get that in briefs. If people can't afford to hire a lawyer, they'll sort of try to write something on their own. Um, but I'd never seen this uh, at an argument before. And then the other thing was uh, she, you know, her command of English uh, was, it was, you know, very, it was very sketchy. And so, uh, she sort of was trying to kind of engage in a back and forth with the court, but the, it was very like uncomfortable, and you sort of like wondered why the court had scheduled argument uh, to sort of put this you know poor woman who you know been remo- ordered removed from the United States and is having a hard enough time uh, through this bizarre spectacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no idea why they would want to do that. Uh, it was uh, it was it was grim. It was grim. Hmm. Sort of not. It was not great. Not great. Man, I was hoping for like so. a naked judge or. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. So never a fist, a naked fight, judge. A fist uh, fight between like me, you know me, members on the bench. <laughs> yeah. Well, speak, no, sorry. Speaking of uh, higher courts of the land, Supreme Court and appellate court, um, we have been talking in our offline or I guess online chats, but offcast chats about the Supreme Court ruling, which I believe has been brewing for some time on, and it centers around a California land that seeks or law rather that seeks to ban or limit violent video games. And the right. one that, like, Postal 2 is one of the ones that uh, kind of sparked this controversy in the, the Mortal Kombat remake. Um, right. Do you have an update on, like, kind of what that case – we're going to start talking about video games for a bit. What's that case about? Yeah. What is the potential – I mean, what, what what's the fight for and what do we have to be afraid of as geeks or hopeful? Well, you know, it's interesting. So there's the, this case is out of California, and what the law says is – uh, that it is illegal to sell a violent video game uh, to anyone under 18 uh, unless uh, the law – the game has – it's this odd formulation like substantial literary, artistic, or political value uh, for minors. You know, And who knows exactly what that means. Is this like the Miller um, Law for video games? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly like what it is. Uh, it's very strange. And – uh, so every court to – before this, a bunch of the courts of appeals have considered laws like this, and all of the courts of appeals have all said that they're unconstitutional, that they're a restriction on freedom of speech uh, that isn't justified by any of the sort of exceptions to the usual rule that you can't restrict what people want to say to each other. Um, so all right, so far, so good. And I, you know, I think all those rulings are correct. And you know, there, there had been no courts of appeals at all that had come out the other way. Uh, and then the Supreme Court decides to, to take this case uh, rising out of, the, of California and the Ninth Circuit. Um, and you know, by itself, that doesn't mean they think that the decision below is wrong. I mean, sometimes they just want to clarify the state of the law, uh, and you know, so sometimes they affirm a decision after they decide to, to take it and listen to it. Um, and so, you know, based on the oral argument, so they, they granted the case. Uh, about a but roughly a year ago, right? And they heard it. Uh, I think it was argued in September, maybe uh, of of last year. That so the way right. the Supreme Court works is their term starts in October. Well, it obviously wasn't argued in September. I think it was argued in maybe November. The Supreme Court term starts in October. It runs through June, uh, and all of the cases that are argued that term are decided by the end of the term. So you you know for sure that by the end of June, uh, if your case was argued that term, you're going to get a decision one way or another. Okay, so far so good. Then we we hear the argument in November. Uh, 
And based on the justice's comments at oral argument, it seemed like everything was going to be just fine. It seemed like there was a sort of clear majority of the court uh, that thought these laws were not okay, that they, that there was no – you couldn't just restrict speech because it was violent. Uh, we have no sort of history or tradition of that in the United States, whether it's for minors or not. Just, so it seemed like great. So far, so good. Um, well, that was a long time ago, uh, and now there is only one day left in the term. It's Monday. There are four decisions outstanding, and this is one of them. And you might think that if it was going to be sort of just easy peasy, they would have written this and released it months ago, uh, but they haven't. And you know, no one knows why. Uh, it's possible that somebody uh, is is preparing, you know, a very, an epic dissent. It's going to be very long, uh, and sort of that. That's why the opinion is getting held up. It's possible that the sort of good guys lost some votes along the way, and now you know th- there's sort of been a struggle over what the outcome is going to be, which would obviously be pretty bad. Um, or it's possible that you know it's just a long, complicated opinion on both sides, and it'll come out the way everyone thought, and everything is going to be fine. Um, but you know, uh, I really think that uh, if if anyone who cares about the you know video games in the United States uh, should pay attention Monday morning, uh, ten o'clock Eastern time, when this decision will be announced, because it's it's obviously going to be uh, it has a potential to do you know great damage uh, to the sort of state of affairs in this country. Uh, so I, obviously I sort of tip my hat a little bit on how I hope it comes out. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's going to be very interesting. Let me ask you like a devil's advocate position. How is this different than movie theater change requiring minors to show ID uh, to prove that they're 17 or older or have a parent to, to, to sell them a rated R movie ticket? Uh, well, the reason it is is because that uh, movie theater uh, rating system is voluntary, um, which a lot of people may not know, but it is. It is imposed by the Motion Picture Association of America uh, and as a sort of condition on their sort of member theater groups and you know, to get the prints, you might have to agree to do this. But uh, it's – you know, there is no law at all that ah. says uh, a 16-year-old kid uh, can't go into uh, you know a video store and buy a DVD of Schindler's List uh, because it's sort of deemed too violent. Uh, there's no law that says anything like that, and it would be it would actually be rather shocking if you could have a law like that because it's one thing to say you know we as movie theater chains sort of we're, we we want the clientele we want and we're going to let in people uh, over a certain age and not under a certain age for certain movies fine that's a business decision businesses can decide to do that and it's not you know none of my business uh but for the government to say that we've decided that people who uh aren't you know 18 yet can't know about violence in the world uh that's pretty shocking that would be very surprising um and much different than i mean anything we've ever had in, in, the, in this country before. I mean, it'd be positively warping to get to the age of 18, having never learned about this sort of like, I mean, like, look, like it or not, violence is a part of human affairs. It's part of human history. And it's a, you know, it's, it's part of the way the world works. Uh, and to get to 18 without sort of ever having been exposed to a story about it, uh, never being allowed to, you know, you can't read, uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey because there's too much violence in them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy that the government would be able to do that. Um, so I think that's why it's different. Especially to single out video games above all other forms of media. Right. Yeah, very strange. Uh, like why – I mean if, if this stuff is warping people's brains, uh, then you know, high school football is pretty violent, right? Why, why, literally why allow people brains. to do that? I mean literally warping their brains with the concussion <laughs> scares that we've been reading about. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it just seems like we have enough honest to goodness problems uh, and not enough time for you know made up ones like this. It's just it's it's stupid. It's it's amazingly the the entire concept is brain dead from its inception. And but you know we'll, we will see what happens. 
All right, we're going to talk about a couple of questions that kind of deal with the intersection of IP law and video games. Um, one thing that I've been annoyed with a trend is that gaming content creators are being a lot more possessive of their server space. And in fact, the last few times I've been to a LAN party, hmm. we could not run our own local servers. We had to use the officially approved um, blessed mm-hmm. servers to play on, which gave us a hard time, you know, in ma- you had to go through all this matchmaking crap instead of like, here's everybody in a room, join the server, yeah, higher pings. And, like you know, it just led to like, it didn't feel like a real net party. And if we right. go back, so this is a big problem in Starcraft tournaments because in exactly. Starcraft 2, there's no way to play locally. And, and, and Blizzard, so, Blizzard's been you know. one of the assholes that's kind of been at the root because I remember one of our, the first times I had an argument, well, not an argument, but I guess a mutual kind of like bitch session with you was over to bnet d project do you remember that that mm-hmm. was like they had you I know, do. blizzards I has a battle net and someone came and reversed engineered it all legally they didn't like uncompile it they just you know like black box reverse engineered um a battle net uh client or server so that you could play off the blizzards official stuff and they got shut down through legal legal threats um i'm mm-hmm. not sure i think it was just a threat it wasn't actually something that came down through case law um where do projects stand that try to replace official releases and servers, uh, you know, with some sort of homebrew or uh, unofficial server uh, piece of software? Well, it's it's murky, and so let me let me lay out a little bit what the sort of tools that companies use to fight these things. The basic deal is this: so, okay, you've got a game, and it's uh, it's copyrighted. Okay, code's copyrighted. That's fine. Now, to install that game uh, or even to run it, you need to make a copy of the software. You need to copy it to disk, and then you need to copy it from disk into memory. That's making a copy of something copyrighted, which usually you know you're not allowed to do without permission. Now, uh, of course. Uh, Every game comes with uh, what is termed a license uh, that you have to agree to before you install it or do anything with it. And that license sort of says, uh, we're going to give you permission to do this thing you're not allowed to do, which is make a copy of our copyrighted software. Uh, But here are the conditions on that license. Uh, And one of the conditions is, you know, you don't do stuff like BNetD. You don't run it on a non-authorized server. You don't do any sort of whatever behavior we don't like. We're going to say that's a condition of the license. And uh, if you do one of those things, the argument goes, you have violated the terms of the license, and that means that uh, you are now, you know, we, the license is sort of revoked by your behavior, and you are now making copies of our game uh, without our permission, and that's a copyright violation, right? When you run that game to do something that's not covered by the license, uh, you are making a copy illegally, and and we can come get you now. Isn't that kind um, of so insane, just the premise, that, like, loading something from disk to RAM make, is making it a copy? And that's like saying when I read a book, my eyes convert the words into a signal in my brain, and it's making an unauthorized <laughs> copy of my brain. Uh, I, I think that is a uh, that is a serious objection, uh, and it's possible <laughs> for people to disagree about whether that's uh, – uh, to say the least. Um, uh, now, the, the other response people make is, well, you know, there's a provision of the copyright law that says any software – you are allowed to make a copy of any software you own for the purposes of installing it on your computer or making a backup. And this is actually – this is section 117 of the copyright law. Uh, you're allowed to do that. You, the, that is a right that is granted to you uh, in the same you know piece of, uh, piece of law that grants – the copyright holder, their rights in the first place. So you might say, well, why doesn't that pretty much cover this? And the answer, as you, as you can un- undoubtedly predict, is they say, ah, well, you don't own the software. 
we're just licensing it to you. Oh, of course. Of course you are because I, I was surprised. I was confused because I went to the store and I bought a box and I gave them money and I took my box home and I would have thought that I owned that box. But as it turns out, I don't. I actually, you are the real owner of this thing that I just paid money for and I'm going to keep uh, for an indefinite period of time in my house. Uh, uh-huh. it's, uh, I, I would have thought so – usually when I go to the store and I, I give them money and I take something home, I, I own that thing. Very surprised to find out that sort of by – uh, sort of saying so on the end user license agreement, you can convert my purchase into a license. You can tell what I you can, you can sort of tell what I think of this argument. But that's the <laughs> argument they make, and they have not been totally unsuccessful uh, with these kinds of things. Um, uh, it's it's unsettled. There's sort of there's uh, different law in different courts, and it's sort of never really been cleared up by the Supreme Court, and may never be. Um, but you know, just the threat of litigation itself, which is very expensive, is generally enough to deter these projects. Unfortunately, because litigation is very costly. So, um, so that's basically the that's the deal. Is they the, the way these projects get shut down is by using the copyright law and sort of threats of infringement lawsuits uh, to get to the point where it's just too expensive to develop them. So, so this is probably a good time for me to ask uh, a question that one of our listeners, the Don Staffa, you probably have heard of him. Um, sure. has asked on our forums. He wants to know about uh, ROMs. And since we're all kind of old-school gamers here, um, this kind of pertains to all of us. I know I've... I'll admit to downloading a ROM before of software that <gasps> I software that I actually own the cartridge for. Things like that. Mm-hmm. I'll um, go one so step what... further. I've downloaded a ROM <laughs> to software I've uh, not... Do not physically have in my possession. Tisk, I hear the, I hear the sirens already. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So what is, the, what is the legality of that? If you own um a cartridge let's say let's take it back all the way to there because we we don't really want to talk about the the licensing or whatever but if you own the actual cartridge what is the legality of downloading then a rom or a copy of that software onto your computer to play it emulated yeah so i think i think so this is unsurprisingly this is a this would be a gray area um (laughs) and i i think that it is um, I think there is a good argument, um, and I'm not, you know, it might not win, but I think there is a good argument that the very same Section 117 rights that we were just talking about, where when you own uh, a piece of software like a, you know, video game cartridge, you have the right to make a copy uh, for, for example, backup purposes. Uh, that's unquestionable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there is a good argument that this situation would be covered by that because you're saying like, look, I own the cartridge and the way I'm making my copy for backup purposes is I'm downloading it over the internet, for example. Into your now, RAM. In, 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 <laughs> on your on my drive. computer where my backup mm-hmm. will live, right? And if I lose my cartridge, then I won't lose the software that I paid for and that I own. Um, and the, you know, the interesting thing is with uh, you know, video game cartridges, there, there aren't – uh, and user license agreements. You know, right? you don't click. Uh, you don't click through. I agree or anything like that. There's really no license. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you would have a good argument that that would be an exercise of your Section 117 rights. Because you know, how else are you going to make a backup of your of your video game software, right? How are you going to do it? I mean, how am I going to back up a you know a Game Boy cartridge uh, unless I have some, you know except onto my computer? I mean, it seems like a good argument to me. Uh, I'm not an expert in these in, in this particularly, uh, and, and you know. Don't go out there and do it on my say so, uh, but uh, I, I think that there is a reasonable case to be made that that is a lawful exercise of your rights. Now, obviously, downloading stuff uh, that you don't own—that's that's bad. Don't do that. You know, that's that's copyright sure. infringement, and whether you want to run the risk of doing that or not is obviously uh, up to you. But uh, you know, I think there's a I think there's a good case that you know your friend is uh, uh, is within the bounds of the law, but it's unsettled. 
Um, yeah, so don't make copies of the show, anyone, because there's a there's a horribly extensive license on this thing. <laughs> Um, yeah. I, I Anyone did... by listening to this show, you hereby agree uh, <laughs> that all the hot babes you meet are the property of Ian Samuel. Stated, <laughs> stated by an actual lawyer, so you're in trouble. Um, yeah. I did want to ask uh, one more follow up question. With that, how far do those licenses extend? Can they basically say that they own your children by opening these boxes by running this software? It's a good question, right? I mean, uh, I mean, if if they can just sort of unilaterally. Um, I mean, so for example, if anything you sort of click I agree to becomes part of the license and uh-huh. to do anything that the license doesn't let you do is copyright infringement. I mean, presumably they could say by clicking I agree, you know, you, you hereby, for example, agree to, uh, you know, be a subscriber of our service for the next 10 years. And if you don't do it, uh, then, uh, you know, that's copyright infringement because you're outside uh-huh. the terms of the license. I mean, you can take this to, to clearly absurd ends, which is why I think that, you know, these these click through licenses cannot actually function to deprive you of ownership of a thing you've bought. But you know, have they actually challenged the legality of uh, end user licenses? Agreements? There have been cases about this. There was a case in the Ninth Circuit uh, not too long ago about uh, World of Warcraft bots, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which violate the terms of Blizzard's license, and uh, and they they sued somebody. Blizzard sued somebody. I don't know if it was the makers of the bots or or players or what. Uh, and the, the conclusion of the Ninth Circuit, as I recall, was, okay, you don't own the software, um, uh, but um, for you know the bots aren't illegal, uh, and it's not copyright infringement. And then there's, so they go into sort of a t- kind of technical distinction that I won't bother everybody with. But uh, there have been cases about this, and they're litigated. And you know groups like the EFF, and, and you know places like that, and the you know Software Freedom Foundation uh, or Free Software Foundation. Maybe both. Um, you know, they get involved in these kinds of things, and they have not—they have not been totally unsuccessful. So, you know, this is a live thing. You know, this is a fight that's ongoing. Hmm. Uh, well, we're definitely going to talk about the EFF and some of those software foundations later. But real quickly, I wanted to kind of direct us towards um, the the IP concerns around uh, the cloud-based music services, like Amazon um, and Google have been launching lately, and even iTunes is starting to go cloud-based. Um, mm-hmm. And they're being sued. They're being sued by the media companies. So I was wondering um, what you think of the most recent developments um, with Amazon basically just pushing into the market and saying, challenge us. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's, um, you know, it's nice. I think it's good in the following respect. Um, So I don't know if Amazon is going to end up winning their legal fight with the labels. I really don't. Um, I think that they've, they've got a pretty good argument, I think, that all we're providing is an opportunity for you to store your music online. You upload the files, and we store the files, and then you, we have a little player for the files you upload. Uh, it's no different than Dropbox, really. And it sounds like yeah. a good argument to me. Um, but whether they win or not, I'm glad that this is happening because the only way that you ever get – uh, good results uh, in the sort of realm of like user rights and, and IP and copyright and stuff like that is if you have moneyed interests on both sides who uh-huh. can afford to litigate this as part of their business. So music labels can crush individual listeners because a, a regular person doesn't have the legal wherewithal to sort of fight forever, uh, even if they're completely in the right, right? Sure. Amazon obviously thinks this is a, a bet that they're, you know, 
willing to back up with. I mean, they, they knew the day they did this, of course, that the music labels, uh, f- whom they did not seek the permission of, uh, they knew they were going to object to this, and they knew that that objection was going to come in the form of litigation. So they were obviously prepared to fight to do this. Well, that's good because if they win and they get a very user-friendly uh, result out of it, that would obviously be great for everybody. Um, so uh, regardless of whether they – I mean it's, it's the best chance we have. I guess I would say, you know, the fact that Amazon and Google are sort of lined up on the side of like, you know, this is not copyright infringement. Uh, Users are permitted to do this. Uh, That's the best hope for a good result. Um, Yeah, I know I was I was personally very happy to see it because, like you said, you need the big money interests um, because the music industry has basically been very predatory um, in regards to individuals and going after the small guy. Um, And now when when Amazon comes into the market um, and just says we're going to do this. Then they they can't they can't get the out of court settlements that they've been getting with individuals. This is going to either go to the top or they're going to drop it. One of the two. Um, right. Yeah, I think that's so exactly I think it's right. Great. Yeah. So I think it's very good. We've been talking a lot about intellectual property disputes, and intellectual property is this kind of like nebulous term that embraces, uh, you know, trademarks and copyrights and uh, licensing and. Um, you know, a lot of different things that we kind of treat as one in the geek community. Do you feel that on a fundamental level, are all IP concerns, all intellectual property linked together or should they be treated as distinct things? Like a patent is this and, you know, a copyright is this and a trademark is that, or should there be some kind of like one, you know, universal binding kind of uh, law that, that supersedes all this stuff? Those are just basically ideas. Right. I mean, well, they're obviously like I, I try to keep uh, I mean, I don't know anything about trademarks and like trade secrets and sort of some of the like frontier sort of like edge stuff in, in this world. But I do think that there are important differences between patents and copyrights. The people should keep in their head uh, a little more clearly than they do, because like they're four different things and um, they should be. Uh, they should be treated differently. So, for example, like we have in the patent world, pat- patents are all by registration, right? You have to register for a patent and like prove to a- an office of the government that you've invented something new uh, and sort of lay out how you did it um, in order to get a monopoly to do that thing for a fixed period of time. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one. Th- the reasons you might want to have a system like that uh, are sort of separate from the reasons that you might want to have a system of copyright where it's automatic, for example. You know, as soon as you take a picture, you've got a copyright in it. Um, it's for a much longer time. And patent lasts 17 years and then it's done. A copyright lasts, I mean, you know, as a practical matter forever. Um, uh, and so I do try to keep them straight in my head because, you know, they are four different things. Um, there are a lot of things like, you know, I, I tend to think, for example, that software patents uh, are an example of like this is an area we should just be dealing with through copyright. You know, if you have a copyright on software you've written, that's one thing. But to patent the sort of idea of an algorithm just uh-huh. seems to me to be, you know, really, really absurd. Um, so, yeah, I, I try to keep them straight in my head. But they're obviously related. I mean, they're obviously cousins in some sense. Sure. Um, speaking of that, we actually have another listener question. Well, I had one more follow up oh, on did. that too. Okay. Um, because like I think of in 1984, they had Sony versus universal, I think yeah, that kind of like solved for a generation of technology, a lot of intellectual property disputes. Like, can I make a recording of a television show and play it back on the recording device? And, right. you know, because the court ruled in the way they did, it really blew the lid off of a lot of things we take for granted for now, like, you know, time shifting mm-hmm. content, DVR, stuff like that was all made possible by that ruling. 
The right. Youth- so, so they say it's fair use for you to make a copy of a program for you to watch it later. That's right. What the decision says. So, and that kind of solved a lot of things until the internet era. Do you think we'll have a similar like landmark law or landmark ruling that will solve the tension between content producers, consumers, and pirates? Because they all have. I mean, consumers just want their stuff to work and stuff to play. Mm-hmm. Content producers want to get paid for producing content, and pirates just want to rip it off for free. There's got to be a way to protect the rights of a consumer without just you know giving the keys to the kingdom away to the pirates. You know, I mean, we could argue about what's wise, what the content producers should do, blah blah blah. But what do you think there'll be a a nice neat bow of a law that is wrapped around that basically it indemnifies consumers? and allows content providers to effectively prosecute pirates? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think so. Uh, I think that basically, like, if you're a consumer in the world right now, like, if you listen to music or you watch, you know, movies or you play video games, I think you basically right now have, like, a couple of problems. Uh, <laughs> the first problem you have is that copyright lasts way too long, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Supreme Court already uh, already heard that case, and they basically said Congress can keep going back and extending it and extending it forever and ever. So mm-hmm. that problem doesn't feel like it's going to get solved. Uh, the other problem you have is that uh, to the extent that all of your stuff is burdened with, you know, crappy digital rights management stuff, it makes it impossible to, you know, take your uh, take your movie that you bought on iTunes and play it on, you know, some other device, uh, that doesn't seem like a thing that the law can really solve because people are just going to have to decide that they don't want to pay money for that because you wouldn't want to make that illegal. I mean, digital rights management is a bad idea, but it would be hard to think of a way to make it unlawful uh, that wouldn't also, like, be have a lot of unintended side consequences. So, um so I don't really see this as a sort of a problem the law is going to solve. I mean, I think in the long run, like the solution to the problem you're talking about is, uh, you know, it's like it's when it is more convenient uh, and better to pay for stuff at a reasonable price, uh, you will get enough of the market that you can make money. So this is why Steam is great. Steam is, I mean, yep. Steam, Steam uses digital rights management. It absolutely does. It is a DRM system. Mm-hmm. But it's like the best one you've ever used because instead of making it harder than it used to be to, to play games on just that you would install from a CD, it's so much better because you can, you know, you can install it, you know, on delete it and then install it again later or install it on a you know different computer that you own or, or stuff like that. Uh, and so as a result, you know, I think a lot of people who might have uh, who might have pirated games in the past uh, will go on Steam and pay you know five dollars on a Steam sale, uh, and you know, content producer makes money. Uh, you know, there's some protection against piracy. Uh, consumer gets to play a game he wants. Sort of everybody wins. So you know, this is why you know iTunes is a you know the iTunes store. I think displaced casual piracy for a lot of people because it's just it's just more convenient and the price is reasonable. True. Um, so yeah. Um. So so you mentioned that you think it's not going to be a problem solved by the law, but is there is there any threat right now? Um, that someone will try to litigate this or try to make laws to cover this and royally f it up. Have, oh, have there sure. Been any I mean, movements? there are. There is. I mean, there's like, for example, there's the like Protect IP Act, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, expands and you know criminalizes just an amazingly stupidly large amount of stuff. You know, even linking to a website. Uh, as I as I understand the Protect IP Act. If you link to a website that is accused of copyright infringement, uh, you're on the hook for like you know a federal crime essentially. I mean it's wow. just – it's beyond ridiculous. Um, the other thing that, you, that we're seeing is a lot of moves to make uh, certain like you know like digital locker services, you know like uh, you know 
websites where you can sort of store files and send to people, you know, send a link to them and they can download for free uh, to make those illegal or to make them, you know, sort of more regulated or whatever. I think Europe, I think Britain passed a law that did something like that uh, in the very recent past. So uh, there's always going to be, I mean, these these threats are not going away and this sort of copyright maximalism where we just got to expand and expand and expand, uh, you know, the the legal rights that content owners um, have, that's not going away. But, uh, Mm-hmm. You know, so we gotta, gotta gotta stop that. Okay, so that kind of brings us back around to um, the the trademark question uh, that was asked by Madbrew, I think, on our forums. Yeah, Madbrew is he's all about RPG systems, mm-hmm. and he's got like this really unique take on not it's not unique take, but he's got a unique concern about copyright law because there's a lot of things like game rule, core rule mechanics can't be mm-hmm. copyrighted. Copy written. Right. Copy copy written. Copy wrote. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is. They can't. But, copyrighted. But you can take like proper names of things and um, trademark them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like you know what D and D did. They're like, you know what? In three five, screw it. We're going to release all our rules under the open gaming license since people can take them anyway. But we are going to protect vigorously the concept of a beholder or um, a lich king. I guess. Although I don't know. I think Blizzard. <laughs> stole that from them. when they named their game then. yeah yeah so yeah. they say so and we're going to protect our art the stuff that our artists make the things that make D great but you know go run wild with the d20 rule set so that's kind of right. like informs this next question that he asks um and i'm just going to read it verbatim um he says i know short phrases names and titles cannot be copyrighted but they can be protected via trademark uh, how well can proper names and titles of elements presented in a work be protected by trademark for instance uh, if a tabletop game has a mechanic called Lubert's Rod of Golden Showers uh, presented within the rules but not used to market or otherwise identify the product, does the publisher have any legal ground for litigation against another publisher that also makes use of the name? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, fortunately, the answer to that question is I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, the truth of the matter is uh, trademark law is not really something I know that much about. I mean, it sounds... Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like you kind of should? Somebody uses your rod of golden showers. It isn't you. Don't you feel like you should kind of be able to get money from that guy? I would feel violated, yes. Yeah, I feel like I feel like you should be able to get money from that guy. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. See, this is, this is why I like that disclaimer at the beginning because I can just guess, and no one can say that the, that it's legal advice. So, um, yeah, I don't, as a practical matter, I don't know. Uh, we don't accept I don't knows in this podcast. So theorize, Mister Data. No, um, theorize. I, I I think you probably uh, you're probably probably pants. You probably can't get anything. Um, the other question he had was about the um, we, we kind of briefly touched on this the Copyright Term Expansion Act of 1988. Uh, he wanted to know what your thoughts concerning the protection of corporate IP was. He says his stance is the current extension should be rolled back to original specs. I think it does the opposite of its constitutional intent which is to promote creativity and he mentioned the mickey mouse act as it was so titled right right the sunny bono thing yeah well i agree with that i mean i think so i mean as a the constitution says that uh, copyrights are to be secured for limited times okay that's actually in article one of the constitution um to me if congress can extend and extend and extend a copyright term indefinitely that is no longer of a limited time in any practical sense. Um, and the economic rationale for it is non-existent because if the argument for copyright is we have to incentivize creators so that they can get a – they'll know be able to get a reasonable return on whatever they make, um, Mickey Mouse is already made, 
right? And so he can't be, you know, the incentives are already done operating on the creation of Mickey Mouse. Um, so I think that, you know, the Sonny Bono thing, I mean, I'm not, I'm not familiar with a, 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 a legal academic who sort of works in the realm of copyright anywhere who thinks that was a good idea or is he even mildly supportable by anything other than just interest group politics. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, that's my answer. That's basically where I fall on it too. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be up to we the people – to be basically, if this comes up and Congress extends it again to get awareness out and be like, this is bullshit. This is going to mean your jobs. Yeah, I think I think so. It is. A, I think it was. Um, you know, it was like a seventeen-year. I don't remember how long the extension was, but I remember a, a couple of months ago I was looking at it and I realized that in the next few years. The sort of extra years from the Sonny Bono copyright thing were going to be over, and they were going to have to either do it again or let some of this stuff go into the public domain. And I think that the last time it happened, it was in the like late 90s, and it was – the internet and was not quite a thing yet. I mean people were online. I was online, but it had not had the mass sort of impact that it has now, and I'll be very interested to see uh, what that fight looks like because it's one that you know the every – person and sort of politically interested individual on the internet is going to obviously you know have want to say something about so i'll be inter- I mean, you know i'll certainly be paying attention and we didn't have the internet back then for us all to kind of organize and, and educate yeah. um and yeah, I was, it was I was, very different uh, i was gonna say isn't that number the the amount of years that it's protected approaching a lifetime now isn't it going to be harder it's- to justify it once it's over someone's natural lifetime well, it's actually like right now it's it's already over that. It it's is, okay. Like the creator's – it's like the creator's lifetime plus I, I want to say like 70 years or something. I mean it is oh. a long, long time. Wow. Um, yeah, or maybe it's uh, – Maybe it's life plus ninety years. Whatever it is, we're we're way past life. I mean, it, that hmm. yeah. that is the okay. mirror. It's also kind of destroying the public domain because stuff that yeah. would have been. You know, like right now on my Kindle, I have all these works from the 19th century that I've downloaded for free, and I'm not hurting Dickens or, right. you know, Tolstoy or any of those guys. Uh, but I cannot play Steamboat Willie on my BlackBerry. Think of his estate, <laughs> right. man. His estate. <laughs> the pain you're yeah, causing. No, the, um, you know, the Great Gatsby, for example. That's mm-hmm. not – I don't think that's in the public domain. It's absurd that it's not. Um, okay, so we've talked about some of the frightening uh, IP precedents, I, I guess. But um, are there any really promising uh, IP-related legal precedents that you've seen developing recently? Hmm. Promising. <laughs> this another uh, I don't know. <laughs> not uh, – well, actually, yes. Actually, there is one. Um, and this is a good – this was a good one. So um, there is a thing in the patent law called uh, inducement of patent infringement, where you're not the primary inducer, but you encourage someone else to induce to violate the patent. Um, and uh, and you're liable as an infringer, just the same as if you'd done it yourself. Now, huh. the Supreme Court this term uh, confronted the following question. So to infringe a patent, you don't have to know about the patent. You don't have to know anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a patent for a certain kind of vacuum cleaner and I build that vacuum cleaner, I infringe the patent and I owe you money whether I knew you had a patent or not. Right, doesn't matter how hard I looked, doesn't matter anything. It is, it's uh, strict liability. The question in the case was: uh, Is inducement of infringement the same way? So, if, for example, if I encourage you, uh, you know, if I hire a factory to build me a bunch of, uh, uh, of vacuum cleaners, for example, uh, they're they're probably violating the patent directly, and that's their problem. But am I liable 
uh, for for violating the patent. If um, if I don't if I am inducing someone else to do something that in fact violates the patent, uh, but I don't know there's a patent out there. Mm-hmm. And the answer, uh, hearteningly, was no. To be liable as an inducer, you have to know about the existence of the patent. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's, you know, it's nice. Um, and it really, uh, because software companies really cared about this big time because uh, they get hit with tons of, you know, sort of patent troll stuff all the time. And they really care about uh, the inducement rules. And so they were big participants in this case and uh, came, out the, came out the good way. So how about that? Sounds good. It's it's just uh, a shame there are no other good legal precedents happening right now. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, it's, there, uh, there hasn't been a lot of action on the copyright front recently. I mean, it's, oh, okay. uh, you know, other than this terrible legislation that's being proposed, you know, the IP Act. Is that yeah, the, the Protect IP Act. Yeah, Protect IP. Um, let's talk about a little bit. Maybe not legal, but it's something I think you got an opinion on. Um, what role does WikiLeaks and independent journalists play in our future? Uh, you know, can newspapers and that kind of in-depth journalism survive in an environment where anyone can leak any information out instantaneously and anyone can write an, a, a reasonably informed opinion and pu- publish it anywhere in- instantly? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think journalists are going to be just fine. Um, I don't think that the WikiLeaks model uh, – is particularly sustainable because it involves. I want to. I want to phrase very carefully my comments about WikiLeaks because they are. Uh, in fact, I just. I think I should say nothing about WikiLeaks. I'm gonna say nothing about that. I'll just. I'll just want to talk about journalism. Journalists are going to be fine, um, and the success of I think places like Talking Points, Memo, uh, and a lot of the sort of online-only journalism outlets, or, or like even you know places like Politico, prove that you can run a business and make money uh, selling uh, news online. You can do it. Uh, people are doing it every day. Uh, now the old newspapers, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post. I don't know. They were their business model was built for a completely different kind of era, and you know. I'm, I'm a lot less sure about those guys. What I know for sure is that um, local newspapers, uh, they're, pretty much, they're pretty much dead. Um, there's a, maybe a market for like one or two big English language newspapers in the United States. Like, you know, the New York Times, I think, is going to survive. It'll probably survive in some form. But, uh, you know, the Pueblo Chieftain, the, the paper of my hometown, no. No, it's not going to happen. What's the argument for it? You can get online and learn everything that's going to be in the public chieftain for free. Uh, local news is very well handled by, like, local bloggers. I mean, I learned plenty about uh, my D.C. neighborhood through reading a couple of blogs, and they, these are hobbyists doing it for free. Um, uh, and the reality is it's just it's going to be very hard for those places to make money, and I think we're going to see a rise in sort of, like, mid-level petty corruption in small cities as a result because the sort of local newspaper watchdog is going to be gone. There's going to be all sorts of uh, sort of grift and corruption uh, that unfortunately we're just never going to know about and it's not good but i don't i don't see how it see um, i thought you you say the opposite that like lots of large metropolitan areas um or at least the mid you know like the indianapolises of the world um are not going to have a newspaper of record but there would be ones at a local level because again yeah there might be a local blogger for like dc and you know denver colorado but i don't think there's going to be one for like greenfield indiana uh, or well, how, like do, how does the how does the Florida. Times how do they make money? I mean, oh, I, uh, I, why, are, why are people going to pay for that? I that's a good question. I I just wonder if, I mean, the only problem with local bloggers covering it is how do you get 
like if if, if I'm a, a person new to the area and I want to know about current events, I could call the local news. I could look up newspapers in the phone book and call them and get a subscription. Boom, I'm plugged in. It's a lot harder to find the blogger of record, you know, for like these little places. Um, and I just wonder, it's like that's the, if we could only find a way to get this information better organized, I guess. So, you know, and, and, and have some kind of transparency over it too, because that's the other thing that you miss with, uh, you know, a, a traditional journalist editorial approach is that, you know, are these sources vetted? Is this guy just making shit up? Mm-hmm. You don't know, you know. Uh, is he really blowing the lid off the mayor scandal or is he just, you know, making something up because he's a political hack? <laughs> that stuff yeah, is possible. all harder. Uh, although I have to say, while you were talking, I Googled Indianapolis blogger of record and the first page of Google results, I don't know, seems pretty promising to me. So, uh, we may already have, we may already have the, uh, device to find stuff on the internet. Uh, right. it's a lot better than the yellow pages actually. Okay. Uh, but I mean, I'd say I don't, I don't totally disagree. I mean, I think that's a, it's an issue. Um, I just don't understand how the, you know, Greenfield Times, uh, how are they going to make money? I mean, if they're not going to be online, no one's going to read them. If they're going to be online, they're not going to be able to charge enough, uh, to make, to pay a whole staff probably because their audience isn't big enough. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so I just, um, Oh, I'm not disagreeing I mean, with you. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it kind of sucks because I think you're right. You are going to see a lot of corruption and graft and things and, you know, police department shenanigans that are not going to get solved because there's nobody looking into it. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. It's, it's too bad, but, uh, you know, we'll work it out eventually, but there's going to oh, be yeah. a period where it's, uh, it's not going to be good. Um, how do you see privacy landscape uh, in 10 to 25 years? Um, it seems like we're heading in a world that wants, like, one-way transparency. Like, everybody wants to know what's going on in citizens' lives, but, you know, the other way where, uh, you know, us knowing what's going on in the government lives and the people that are enforcing laws, that is being frowned upon. Um, where do you see privacy now that the Internet and, like, all the surveillance that we've got and all the stuff can be networked? Um, how do you see that being affected, good or bad? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, the weird thing that I've started to be thinking about is that – so everyone knows we sort of like put ourselves online and we sort of you know document our own selves online and we sort of give away our privacy, right? That's a sort of, sort of trite observation. Everybody knows that. Right. What I've been thinking about lately is that you know, in the process of doing that, we're sort of living these like – lives that are framed to be put online like you see people like taking pictures of what they're doing so that they can sort of post them uh to you know Flickr or facebook or whatever right and you realize that you're like you're you are you suddenly have a, like a directorial distance from your own experiences uh and you know you're doing stuff because it'll be fun to tweet about or, or whatever and it's very like i don't know if that's exactly like a privacy problem or what it is but i'm starting to notice a little bit of that in my own life like i would uh you know i was on i was on this big road trip and i was tweeting a bunch about it and i sort of realized that like you know i was subtly being influenced to go to different places because I'm like that would you know that'll make a cool tweet but it's like that is the real sort of unexplored consequence of all of this stuff, and I have no idea how it's going to play out. Uh, I'm interested to sort of learn, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that it is probably affecting our lives more than we even understand. Um, like you're saying, if we're 
distancing ourselves from the things that we're actually experiencing while we're experiencing them so that we can somehow document them for our friends and for the, and no one cares later. And, and no one cares like yeah. you see the jackass at the uh grand canyon looking through it through a viewfinder uh-huh. it's like you would actually have a better experience just sitting at home watching pbs in high def a presentation of the grand canyon I mean, and like that's said, that's the thing. It's like no one cares. I don't want to see this guy's video that he's shooting. That he's probably not going to watch it more than once in his whole life. Mm-hmm. So why don't just experience it? Right. Yeah, it's sure. very strange. And the sort of, um, you know, the sort of need to curate your own experiences for like the best presentation uh, to other people, whether that's via social network or whatever else, is. Um, I mean, I'm really not trying to be like the sort of like grumpy old man about this. Like, obviously, uh-huh. this stuff, right. you know, it's nice to be able to sort of uh, to, to share this stuff with people. And it can obviously be a huge force for good and it's not going away. Um, but I just like just lately I've been sort of thinking about, you know, what uh, what that's doing to people. Is it good? Is it bad? It's obviously some mix of the two. But it's um, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. It'll be interesting to see what like, you know, future archaeology looks like. Yeah. I mean, because we're recording everything. Hmm. There'll be so much, like, I just wonder what that will look like, whether they just try, you know, they try to drill down the individual lives and tell a narrative there, or they try to draw overall conclusions from a culture. And, you know, like, you think about all the stuff that's on the Internet. Well, we've just ruined any type of uh, archaeological expeditions by recording this. I mean, we're, Blue Yonder is going to be the, the smear on the entire history of mankind. It'll sure. be like the fossilized corpolites. Like, they're looking at fossilized shit. It's just, yeah. And they can dig through to find how much corn was in the person's diet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's... Assuming that's interesting. That, assuming that this will all last. I mean, that's another open mm-hmm. question about when you start talking about archaeology and digital future, that, you know, we're not writing things on stone tablets, we're writing things on... CDRs are going to disintegrate Uh and bits that are going to rot. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, it's like when GeoCities went (laughs) offline, they didn't save any of that. I mean, there was a big project to go through and archive all that had been put on GeoCities, but, you know, it's not inevitable that this stuff stays around. And nothing of value was lost. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've been discussing some negative trends there, Um, but as it relates to, like, IP law in the gaming industry, are there any effective ways for us to combat these sort of negative trends that we're seeing in those arenas? Well, I think that there are, you know, there are two things. Um, I mean, with, at, the, at the big level, at the sort of macro level, uh, when legislation like the protect IP stuff comes up, uh, you, you've got to care and you've got to like, I mean, it, it's very important that you actually do stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the thing is like, as weird as it sounds, senators and congressmen are bizarrely influenced by constituent mail and constituent phone calls. Uh, I mean, it doesn't always make a difference. It's not inevitable that, like, um, you know, you know, obviously, you know, if they have like a million bucks in campaign money on the line, you know, some like nice call from somebody is going to make a difference. But you know, you got to do stuff like that. Um, on a micro level, you know, the only thing you can do, I think, is you know, don't give money. Um, to schemes that like aren't, you know, they don't provide like a relatively robust uh, set of rights for you. I mean, so you know, for example, I feel very comfortable buying uh, music on iTunes because it's all DRM free. Uh, you know, I can do whatever I want with it, uh, etc. You know, I feel a lot less comfortable about like you know some of the games that are you know uh, they're sort of 
crippled by design if you don't have an internet connection. Like, well, I'm not, I don't want to give money to a company that thinks that's a good way to do it. Um, so, you know, I just don't play those things. But, uh, you know, I, I realize these are like both very trite answers, but I think they're trite because they're uh, correct. There's really like, that's mm-hmm. what you have to do. Um, and, you know, over time, I think things move the right direction. You know, music on iTunes used to be uh, all DRM'd. Now it's not. Now there's an MP3 store with Amazon. There didn't used to be that before. Um, so, you know, over time, uh, these are businesses, and like they will work themselves out. But uh, you know, man, that's scary because you're saying letters and phone calls are what sways. Um, and I feel like can't, our generation, since we like we'll, we'll get on Slashdot and we'll bitch, or we'll like you know make an ironic tweet, or get on Facebook and say something and, and share links. But that's like kind of like public masturbation. It's not actually doing anything. You know? It's not. Uh, I mean, and it's important. You know, it's it's a good. You know, it makes you feel good. It makes, it makes you... how people find out about stuff. Right. But it has to be sort of cashed in with the stuff that's going to make a difference to the people who have the decision-making authority, right? And a lot of the times, like you, I, I mean, it, it sounds. I did not believe this for a long time, but legislators really care disproportionately uh, about constituent contact. Like, like I say, for like you know, really big stuff, uh, it's not. I mean, I'm not going to you know make the claim that everyone's just voting their conscience every time, but. Uh, it, it is the one thing that anyone can do, uh, and you know, and you should. Do you ever think that'll switch? Like twenty years from now, you'll hear on CNN, uh, if, assuming that it's not dead, that's like uh, this unpopular legislation is a trending topic at Twitter, and it's got legislators worried that their jobs are on the line. I mean, do you think they'll actually switch to like, okay, we don't make phone calls, we'll send you a text maybe, and we don't write letters for God's sake? Do you think they'll ever start paying attention to the digital stuff? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I think they will. I mean, as time passes and that's how people, uh, you know, communicate with each other, you know, sure. I mean, you know, they didn't used to probably care about faxes, you know, now they do. Uh, they unfortunately still care about faxes. They have fax <laughs> machines. That's good stuff. But, uh, yeah. you know, sure. It's, it's going to be, you know, in the end, um, you know, legislators are, you know, they're, they're human beings and they want to keep their jobs and they don't always have like a good sense of like what that's going to require. And so they're very, you know, they're very risk averse. And so when there's a lot of stuff like, uh, you know, sort of frightening them, you know, they're, they're going to do stuff about it. And when they, as they pay attention to stuff, like, I don't know. You mentioned, um, I wanted to follow up with this and I forgot at the time, but you said that you did not want to comment on WikiLeaks. Is that because you have a complex view of the matter? Is it because the U.S. government is actively involved in some litigation in that regard or investigation? Yeah, it, it's, it's that. I mean, the thing is, like, I have, uh, I have many complicated thoughts on WikiLeaks, but, uh, you know, the Justice Department is not messing around with these guys. Uh, and it's, I, even though I have sort of disclaimed up and down that my views are not the Justice Department's views, I this is one of those really sensitive areas where I don't hot. think I should say anything at all uh, because you know at the end of the day I am still a lawyer who works at the Justice Department and I don't I just gotcha. like I said every, everyone's risk averse everyone likes to keep their job uh, I, I just don't want to be like the guy on the podcast talking about WikiLeaks when he shouldn't I don't want to be that guy <laughs> so I, I think we just got lawyered out of some really juicy WikiLeaks commentary maybe we'll take no, a thing that's the thing is, is I don't even like I, I especially don't want to talk about it because this is not it's not it's not even it's not a million. Uh, years uh, close to anything I have to do. I mean, like, sure. I, I really shouldn't be commenting because, you know, uh, there are ju- many Justice Department lawyers, I'm sure, who think about WikiLeaks uh, as part of their job. I'm not even one of them. Mm-hmm. So I really shouldn't say what I'm talking, you know, shouldn't say anything because I don't even know what I'm talking about. So yeah, uh, WikiLeaks enough. is very interesting. I, I you know, I, I follow it with interest uh, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure we all will. So that's, uh, that's it. Let me ask you a kind of a philosophical underpinning question. 
Um, okay. Do you believe the information should be free? Well, you know, every everyone knows, I think, the, by now, the second half of that quotation, which is, uh, it goes, information wants to be free, uh, information wants to be expensive. Um, and the point is that, like, it's very easy to transmit and duplicate information, but information is also extremely valuable. So uh, this sort of out of this central tension kind of grows uh, the sort of last 30 years of, you know, first world history. Um, so, I mean, what, you know, what does it mean for information to be free? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's hard to sort of answer that question in the abstract. I mean, I believe in, you know, if if information being free means a robust public domain, yeah, I believe in that. If information being free means, you know, a lot of people, uh, sort of hobbyists, creating great stuff and giving it away for free because they're not trying to make money on it, they just want to make cool things, um, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you know, I wrote a bunch of, uh, you know, I wrote, as we were discussing, I wrote 10,000 uh, posts analyzing uh complicated scientific subject when I was, uh, you know, in, uh, in high school talking about Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, so that's pretty good. I uh, gave that away for free. Uh, <laughs> if information being free means that, you know, artists uh, can't make a living, that doesn't sound so good. Um, if information being free means that, uh, you know, a, uh, a writer uh, or, uh, or an artist or whatever can't, can't make enough money doing what they like doing to be able to do it full time, that doesn't sound so good because, you, you know, I, I, I like reading the work of writers. I like looking at the work of artists. I like listening to the work of musicians. And I want those people to be able to do, their, to do that as their job and make money from it uh, all the time. So, um, so – and I don't think anyone really disagrees with either of those things. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. And I think that uh, the one thing that everybody should be able to agree on is like information about, uh, you know, that – there's this big government initiative to release a lot of the information about government in sort of open formats that are easily like machine readable and stuff like that uh, to, you know, release the, you know, release the federal budget as a sort of parsable XML file. So you can drill down and like create cool tools. Or uh, for example, when, uh, uh, when now justice Kagan was nominated to the Supreme court, uh, there was a big release by the white house of all of her pre previous emails as white. She's been a white house uh, counselor uh, many years ago in the Clinton administration. They released a big uh, dump of machine readable uh, email that she had written as sort of, you know, just released to the public. And then the sunlight foundation, I'm pretty sure created a website, which may still exist called Elena's inbox.com. Uh, Elena Kagan, Elena is her first name uh, called Elena's inbox.com. And uh, it was a searchable Gmail style interface of all of her previous emails that had been, you Free, freely released by the government, but it was so much more useful and interesting and readable, and you could do all this neat stuff with it, and you could go back and like read this stuff. It was really cool. Uh, and so if information being free means stuff like that, yeah, I'm definitely for that. Uh, and sort of the information about you know what the government is doing and the sort of way the government works, like that stuff you know, being out there, that's pretty good. So. Okay. Um, all I know is that Shakespeare got to be paid, son. <laughs> that's my, has to be paid. That's Shakespeare. where I'm like, I, I like pop culture and I want them to keep making of it. Um, I think it's interesting. I don't, I kind of see it's going back to the patronage system because, you know, they keep talking about this growing disparity between the haves and haves not. And back in feudal and medieval and Renaissance times, a lot of times wealthy, you know, landowners and noblemen would sponsor artists for their own kind of vanity and self glory but lots of beautiful art was enjoyed by the public as a result. And I kind of wonder if 
we eventually, as like the billion and trillionaires, you know, get more and more and more of that if they won't start like to compete amongst themselves, you know, they all got money. They're going to start to try to find the best and brightest artists and, you know, uh, intellectual minds. And that's going to be the new kind of social currency. It's possible, although I think that even more likely is that we will see artists and creative people of all stripes uh, being able to sell their work directly uh, to the end, like end appreciators of it. Like so, my mother, uh, who, as you noted, is a a professional novelist. She has been uh, digitizing and putting her own back catalog on uh, on ebook stores like Kindle and Nook mm-hmm. and all of that stuff uh, because she has uh, – the way the contracts work is you get your copyright and your stuff back after a certain amount of time. So she's Jeez. got the copyright to her books again uh, and has been selling her back catalog stuff and has been making a ton of money. I, I mean, bet. Big, big, big paydays selling this stuff. Uh, her own back catalog uh, on Amazon directly to people, and it's no mystery as to why. You know, when you sell a book uh, through Amazon, even though Amazon is a kind of a middleman, you get seventy percent uh, of the sale price. Right. When you're a, an author selling, you know, your books <laughs> in a, through a publisher and in a physical bookstore, you're not getting anywhere close to seventy percent. I mean, try try more like five, six, seven, eight, maybe ten percent. It's right. nothing. It's nothing. Right. Um, so uh, it's you know it's it's. The effect of all this stuff is it's never been a worse time to be a middleman. Uh, uh-huh. It's never been a better time to – I mean you know, it's great stuff. You can write a book today. Anyone can write a book. Uh, the equipment to do so is, is, is amazingly cheap. All you need is a, you know, a piece of shit laptop and you can write a book. Uh, and if that book is good, you can have an audience of hundreds of millions of people who can buy it. Uh, you don't need any infrastructure. You don't need anything. If you can write something that's good and get it out there, uh, you can you can make yourself rich uh, doing what you're great at. I mean, that's good stuff. Um, so uh, there'll be pay- I think there will be maybe some patronage in the future, that kind of thing. That like what you're talking about. That sounds pretty good. But I also just think you know increasingly the sort of independent creator uh, is going to be king, and that is very good. Oh yeah, and I think that's like I think the patronage is more for higher cost of entry stuff, like uh, you know making a Lord of the Rings trilogy, for example. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, you're you're not yeah. going to be independently making a hundred dollar, hundred million dollar movie, but you know George Soros might be a Tolkien fan and front you to money just because he thinks it's really cool to see something like that made. So. Yeah, well, I often wonder, like, so obviously the technology to have like. Uh, you know, first-run movies delivered directly into the home. Obviously, that exists, right? It's getting and a there, lot of people sure. have, you know, pretty nice home theater setups. Right. So I'm just wondering, like, when are we going to get to the point where you can pay? I mean, obviously, you're going to have to pay a lot. You're not going to be able to pay, like, the price of a movie ticket because they're going to want to protect revenues. But imagine you could pay, like, let's say $100 to stream, uh, you know, a first-run movie onto your, you know, home theater, you know, your projection system. You, you, know, you invite five, six, seven people over. It becomes cost-effective. You don't have to go to the movie theater. You don't have to listen to a bunch of assholes eating really loudly next to you uh you know you don't have to go anywhere and you enjoy this great movie and the you know, movie theater gets a hundred bucks that's like, exactly the, the, the way pay-per-view the works now you know, or maybe it'd be more than that i don't know but yeah. I, I feel like we got to get there eventually that's exactly the way like pay-per-view boxing events and mma fights work now nobody just spends 50 to 75 dollars and watch it by themselves invite all their buddies over everybody kicks in five bucks on the six pack and there you go yeah exactly and i think that's um I just feel like that's got to be, you know, that's got. We're going to see experiments with that. I mean, I don't know who's going to do it first, but the, you know, the technology already exists. So it's just a matter of somebody who has the sort of commercial will to do so. Um, it'd be very exciting. Absolutely. Um, we we were talking earlier about some of the more effective ways to combat any negative trends we see. 
Um, and that kind of leads us into the organizations that do that. Um, what is the importance of, say, organizations like the EFF, um, and is it worthwhile to donate to their causes to give them money to fight these battles for us? Well, I think so. Uh, so I, I should say there's a little bit of a you know I have some skin in this game because you know there are I, there are EFF lawyers who are friends of mine and you know f- software uh, Freedom Foundation guys who are you know these people are my friends and so I'm sure. obviously biased. But uh, long before that, long before that's tr- that was true, uh, I did give money regularly to the EFF every month. I think I gave them twenty dollars for a long time, uh, and it is worthwhile because the thing is like they they are doing tremendous work. On, and, and they really make the money count. Uh, these are very, very smart uh, guys and girls uh, who are – they're very, very smart. I mean the, the, the friends I have that are doing this kind of work are like my smart friends. Uh, they, they, they are not you – know, so uh, they've got the best folks, and those folks are working for way less than they could make uh, at a private law firm. Uh, and they are doing, you know, top quality stuff. So, is it worth it? Yeah, like, hell yeah, it's worth it. Uh, I mean, and uh, these are good organizations. I really feel like they put the money to good use, and they, and they, you know, they get stuff uh, for people uh, that you know you, you may never even know about. So, for example, let me give you an example. The EFF uh, started litigating this series of cases about cell phone tracking, uh, where uh basically you know the uh, government investigator would want to know about your whereabouts since they'd get an order from a court that would allow them to track your cell phone using like you know cell tower positioning which is pretty accurate um and uh they were getting this without actually showing probable cause that you had committed a crime or anything like that they just kind of wanted to know uh and the eff started to get involved in these cases and uh you know quite successfully in many cases and actually challenged the ability of the government to do this now you know it was it was the justice department uh that was doing this but i'm already on record because i wrote my student note about this thinking that uh, we probably need probable cause for that so uh nothing new here um but uh you know and and but you know you probably never heard of this before uh, but they're doing a great job. They go in there. It's a sort of like they get right in at the beginning, uh, and they make you know very uh, you know very effective use of that money, and they you know win you know important privacy rights for a lot of people. So sure. uh, these are good groups. These are good groups. And if you if you're looking for an effective way to use your charitable dollar, uh, boy, you could do a lot worse. Um, one follow up question I had um, along the lines of the the Amazon cloud services and the the organizations that fight these sort of legal battles. Um, what do you see the role of sort of these more altruistic, I guess, businesses that are coming up that are like the Amazons and the Googles? And I know they're they're still in it for the profit, obviously, their business. Um, but some of their mission statements seem to be more, more in line with what the consumer would want. Um, do you see any role of business in fighting the legal trends alongside the EFF and other organizations that – that might be coming up in the future. Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, remember the case that Aaron was talking about, uh, you know, the the time-shifting case was a case between, uh, you know, a movie theater and a movie studio and Sony. Uh, because Sony had an interest in being able to sell you a device that time-shifted uh, this thing, and so they had an incentive to sort of stick up for the rights of consumers, and they did so very successfully. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I would encourage people not to think about the world uh, in, like, sort of, like, Manichean like business versus consumer terms like it's not quite that simple like mm-hmm. it's really about uh, different business models competing to survive so like right now uh, I like to use this example where it's like 
you know, when uh, the refrigerator was invented, uh, a lot of milkmen uh, went out of business because all of a sudden you didn't need milk delivered to you every single day because you could just refrigerate it for a week. Sure. Uh, and so like the businessman uh, who sort of made his living running the milkman company, like his business model didn't make sense anymore. And all of a sudden a different guy's business model, the refrigerator salesman, uh, you know, his business model suddenly made a lot more sense. Well, it's the same thing now. It's a competition between old and new business models. So you've got, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, the way Amazon makes its money uh, is by giving you, you know, access to all of your music sort of anywhere you want to have it and selling it to you at a very low price better than so, you know, versus, you know, the, the music industry traditionally made their money by sort of selling you the same song over and over again. First, you buy it on tape, you buy it on vinyl, you buy it on CD, then you buy a digital download. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's just a competition between these two business models. And so, like, yeah, there's a, there's def- there's a big role for, uh, uh, for businesses to sort of fight these things. And, you know, good thing. Um, okay, so I want to ask one more follow-up question to just kind of get to the root of how you feel specifically about altruism in business. Um, because I'm, I've been following the startup scene on places like Hacker News and other sites for a long time now, and it seems like the trend in small business in these startups has been to provide the customer with a valuable service that that enables them to do something better um, or easier, and and it, they're not so much concerned about making tons of money. They all they just want to, a lot of them want to help consumers, um, and so you've got big companies like Amazon and Google doing that. So do do you feel that that is something that's valid, something that's going to continue? Um, And this may be a little bit out of your field of expertise, but I was just wondering your opinion. No, I think it will. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that motivate people in life, and it's not just money. I mean, people people want to get rich, and that's good because, you know, a good way to get rich is by making uh, something that a lot of people like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they also want to be sort of like thought well of by their peers. And within this sort of world of, uh, you know, especially the sort of startup world, especially in the sort of like pockets where it's most concentrated, it's a very tight-knit community. And like being thought of as like an asshole who's sort of like against the rights of the user uh, will like cost you friends. And like sure. you're not going to get invited to the cool parties anymore. And like nobody wants that, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there's a. I think that you know, I wouldn't even necessarily call it altruism. I'd call it a different way of, uh, you know, pe- it, it, people are motivated by self-interest for a lot of different reasons, and sort of being thought of as the kind of guy who or get or girl uh, who who does the right thing and sort of sticks up for the right people and is a uh, you know isn't evil. Uh, yeah, I mean, how much how much you know distance did Sergey and Larry get out of the "Don't be evil" thing? I mean, it's you know widely satirized, but you know they. Sure. They got a lot of cred for that, right? I mean, even if it isn't exactly true anymore, uh, you know, they, the, the whole "don't be evil" thing was a, such a such a contrast. So, um, so I, I think I agree with you. Let's uh, switch our gears a little bit to the executive side of the government branch. Um, what's your opinion of this? What I'm going to say bullshit going up in a country where uh, police officers and public officials are persecuting and prosecuting individuals for shooting pictures and film of them doing their duty well i mean i think that you know it's uh this is i i I agree i don't think this is good i mean i think that um it's too bad because uh for one i think everybody should be able to agree that uh sort of uh, a, having a record of how our public officials go about their duties uh, is good not just for for the public but actually for the officials i mean you know a uh uh, if 
if every police officer's every move uh, were recorded, what we would discover is that actually most of them are very uh, decent, conscientious people who are working hard to do the right thing, and we would be able to identify the ones who aren't very rapidly. Sure. Because the thing is there's, not, there's nothing that's worse uh, for a decent police officer uh, than a bad apple who makes everyone look terrible. And, so, and that's who's driving this stuff is the, is the bad apples, the, the sort of 0.1 percent of guys who cause 99 percent of the problems uh, and don't want any accountability, whereas the, you know, most police officers really are just you – know, Know, trying to do the right thing, and of course, recording those guys would show nothing uh, exceptional at all. So, uh, I, I agree. I think it's uh, it's very it's it's very disturbing the idea that there'd be something wrong with uh, making a record of uh, you know a, a public official discharging their duties in public. I mean, there should be no objection to that at all. Uh, mm-hmm. But so, uh, speaking of bad apples, um, the next question is on police brutality and. And where do you feel that that force um, or excessive force or whatever fits in with law enforcement? And could we actually, in in a truly transparent society, completely eliminate uh, police brutality? And is do we want to eliminate pre- police brutality? Because we want to brutalize um, criminals, right? I mean, personally, I want to brutalize criminals, but <laughs> right, like Sideshow Bob had it right. We we every once in a while need these cold-hearted guys to lower taxes, <laughs> brutalize criminals, and rule us like a king. They can't do yeah. that if, if they can't beat us up and rough us up every once in a while. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know it's a tricky it's a tricky subject because it's very hard, I think, for most people to understand, including me, what it's actually like to sort of be a police officer, kind of on the job, to know that like you know a badge is not a magic shield, right? Police officers get killed and get hurt all the time, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's perfectly understandable that in the heat of the moment things are done. Um, that upon colder reflection don't look like such a good idea. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that that stuff's okay, but I have a lot more sympathy for that than I do the sort of, I mean, there are instances of sort of what, what I would think of as true brutality where, uh, you know, you've got an officer who's like, you know, got somebody handcuffed on the ground or something and, and is roughing them up. Uh, that's not okay. And, don't uh, we, me, that, that absolutely, you know, and, uh, you know, police departments are, uh, I, I, I think sort of, should be given some credit when they uh, when they take action against folks like that because it really is you know in uh, in ninety in police departments everywhere you know ninety nine percent of the problems are caused by one to two percent of the officers it's just certain people who are just bad apples and most police officers are really just trying to do their job but um mm-hmm. you know uh, so yeah I mean I'm, I'm sensitive to that I mean you know it's tough you you, know, you knock on a door of a you know some place you think is a drug warren at six o'clock in the morning and you hear a loud noise like boy shit that'd startle me too. Uh, and I might do something that, uh, upon considered reflection, had been hasty. But we got to distinguish that between, you know, instances of just, you know, masochism and and uh, and cruelty. So. Yeah, and I think we have to factor in that they are putting their lives on the line every day. Um, and when you step into that house where the loud noise goes off, um, you don't know what that is. You, it's possible that's a gunshot. It's possible that your life is in danger. So you're going to take actions to rectify that. Um, so I could definitely see giving a, a little leeway on that. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly understand it at least. Even if I think, like, look, you know, if you, you know, if you violate people's rights, there have to be remedies. Sure. Um, but we should just, you know, we should always just try to remember how we might act in the same circumstances. Um, and you know, even if it doesn't make stuff right, uh, it at least, I don't know, it can help make it more comprehensible. Right. Uh, talk yeah. about the. You mentioned that I think you called the doctrine a doctrine of uh, copyright maximal maximalism. Maximalism, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? This is from Mad Brew as well, uh, one of our listeners. Uh, what are your thoughts on the ability, and we've talked about this a lot, uh, for the little guy to be able to defend himself in a case of fair use uh, 
or even wildly off-base lawsuits without major funding. It seems like corporations with deep pockets can pretty much bulldoze anyone they want. What can a little guy do? Represent himself? And he lists a couple of case laws. One that was particularly seemed ridiculous was Monster Energy Drink successfully getting this uh, brewery, Rock Art Brewery, uh, to not sell a beverage called the Vermonster, which (laughs) was a play on the state Vermont, not Monster Energy Drink. And so, what I mean, that does seem like it's very oppressive if you are in the right, but you can't stand up for yourself because you can't afford the law the, the, to defend yourself. Yeah. Or just, uh, you know, another example of this is just, uh, this week, this guy, Andy bio, um, or Bayo, or I don't know how you say his name. He released this chiptune album, uh, sometime ago right. called kind of bloop, uh, which was a chiptune version of miles Davis's kind of blue, yep. uh, which he funded through Kickstarter. And it was very cool. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the cover of it was a pixel art version, uh, that was meticulously, you could tell meticulously hand created, um, a pixel art version of the actual album cover of Kind of Blue. And it looks great, and you can I'm sure you can find it online. It looks good, and I, I bought it at the time. I'm glad I did. Well, the photographer uh, who had taken that picture sued uh, this guy just recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy, I mean, I, he said, look, I have no doubt that my pixel art version of the album cover constitutes fair use. There's just no doubt in my mind. I know I'm right. But I, the litigation to fight this would be more expensive uh, than I can afford. So he settled it, and not for nothing either. He settled for $32,000. Which probably uh, and, wow. bit out a lot of the Kickstarter funds. Yeah, yeah, that's not nothing. Uh, and then and also agreed to stop using it as the cover, uh, as the album cover for Kind of Blue. So, I mean, one thing I would say is, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you have five bucks, go go buy Andy Bio's uh, chiptune album, Kind of Blue, because you could really use, uh, you could really use the money. Um, but the reality, I mean, it's a, it's a Unfortunate, but the reality is, is in the uh, you know the American legal system is is expensive. Litigation is very expensive and really cannot be done by amateurs. Uh, I would do not freelance this stuff because if you lose, uh, you are very screwed. Um, it can't be done by amateurs and it's expensive. And uh, you know each side pays their own costs. So even if you win, it's not like you, except in some you know very particular and rare circumstances it's not like you get attorney's fees from the loser just for having won so even a victory may be more than you can afford so uh, unfortunately it does create the possibility of a lot of sort of bullying uh and we see that we we, it's the same thing that just happened to all those apple developers uh, like iphone developers who are getting sort of pushed around by a patent troll um you know what what can you really do i mean you can fight it but it's going to be more expensive than just sort of giving in and you know it's terrible but uh, it's the way the system is. So what can you do? Unfortunately, the answer is uh, what can a little guy do is, you know, nothing. Wow. <laughs> this has actually been more depressing than I thought. Okay. Then then I just have one more question for you. Is it not true that in high school your name was actually the Vermonster? Uh, that is that is correct. Uh, I, uh, I I was uh, interdicted by some time traveling trademark lawyers, and that is why I decided to go into law so that I could go back and avenge myself. Right the wrong. Right. <laughs>